Well, um, again, happy um, Mother's Day to all of our um, mothers who are out there, out here um, in our midst. Um, we thank you and we um, celebrate you and we give um, thanksgiving to God for you and for the example of uh, love that you set for us. Um, I know that, um, just as we all do, that in, in life there are um, peaks and valleys or mountain high and valley low. I know that today for, uh, for some people, Mother's Day is a, is a difficult day uh, for different reasons. I know that the continuum of emotions on this day can be very broad and, and wide. Uh, and so um, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I did write a little bit of, of my heart and what I believe to be the heart of God uh, for all mothers um, and for all people for that matter. And so um, at the end of our service or when you have time, I would invite you to, to read that and, and to um, yeah, just allow our hearts to be uh, comforted in the presence of God, as well as to, to honor those whom, whom we are called to honor as well. Um, today, as we continue our, our study in uh, in First Peter, we've kind of in, we've entitled this series "A Christian's Guide to the Galaxy," and it, it can also be entitled "How We Live as Aliens and Strangers in a World That Is Hostile to the Christian Faith Within Us." We come to a, a point that is kind of appropriate today as we talk about husbands and wives. We talk about the idea of marriage as it comes from Peter. We read a lot about uh, the Genesis passage, Genesis 1, and about, about marriage. We read a lot in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church about marriage. We don't really get to, to look into Peter's teaching too much. Um, so today we're going to do that from First Peter chapter 3, and I think this is important um, because for a lot of different reasons. For one, um, I went on Amazon yesterday, and I just typed in books on marriage, and 128,000 hits came up. Okay, 128,000 different books about marriage. Or, yeah, I don't know if it's all different books, but probably some are hardcover, some are paperback, some are Kindle version. But there's 128,000 hits that came up on marriage. And so my proposal was either we're not reading these books or we're not doing what they say because marriages are pretty jacked up. Could it be that when it comes to the idea of teaching about marriage, more isn't really more? But less is more. Instead of having a broad range, a broad spectrum of teaching about marriage, it's probably better that we take a couple places that really get it right and understand what their teaching is. I don't think more is more when it comes to the teaching of marriage. We get our ideas of marriage from so many different places. We get it from one of the 128,000 books that are out there, perhaps. We get it from uh, TV shows. We get it from movies. We get it from fairy tales. We get it, a lot of it is from our parents' marriage and the picture of marriage that they uh, present to us. And based on these things, we get a lot of different views about what marriage is. I think if I ask one person here what their view of marriage is, another person would have a completely different view of marriage. Maybe not completely different, but they have different ideas. What's the role of a, of a husband? What's the role of a wife? Um, and we'd have a lot of differing viewpoints when it comes to marriage. I think um, this is... Uh, especially true when we've got a mix of cultures here. We have a mix of cultures because cultural understanding, as Eugene was sharing when, when Dr. Keller's talking about marriage, marriage was something that was given, the idea of marriage was presented before culture came into being. Right? Before culture ever came into being, before sin ever came into being, God gave his prescription for marriage to be pan-cultural, trans-cultural, over and above any culture. And so you go to different cultures, you have some cultures where the, view, where the role of man, for example, is either extremely chauvinistic or it's extremely cowardly. 
right? Which is right? Depending on what culture you come from, what cultural background you come from, it can be completely different. I remember I was doing, a couple years back, I was down in the Dominican Republic doing a marriage seminar, and they obviously have their ideas of what the Dominican culture uh, views marriage to be. And when I presented the biblical teaching, right, the girls, the men and the women in the, in the, in the audience were having such a, uh, uh, just a, um, emotional response to it. All kinds of questions. There was, uh, when I talked about the idea of women submitting to men, the, the men were like, yeah, you know, and they're yelling at their wives. The idea of, of men laying down their lives for their women, the women were like, yeah, you got to do this. And it was just, it was going back and forth. It was crazy. And depending on what culture you come from, your view of marriage could be very different. As a result, our understanding of marriage has been so uh, just misunderstood, and there's a lot of myths that come into it. On one hand, um, as, again, Keller was saying, there's an ambivalent view, but I think on, on either extreme, there's some who view, that, view marriage to be a ball and chain. This is torture. I get into it because my parents said I have to do it. I get into it because I need to provide for somebody. I get into it because I need somebody to pay the bills in my family. Whatever the reason might be, we, we have this idea that marriage outside of that, outside of the utilitarian reason, is kind of a ball and chain. Four rings in marriage. You've heard of this. The engagement ring, the wedding ring, the suffering, the boxing ring. Some people think that's what marriage is. On the other hand, people have another view of marriage that says, you know what, this is going to be the cure-all, the be-all, the end-all, the fixer of all of my problems. This is it. Everything that I've always longed for in life, everything that's jacked up in life is going to be made right as soon as I get married. All of my sins are going to fall away. All of my issues are going to fall away. All of my lusts are going to disappear because it's going to be satisfied in this one person. And I think either extreme is a caricature of what marriage is, and neither of them fully or adequately paint the beautiful picture of marriage. I think most of us think of it as the blessing to be received or reaped as opposed to what we need to put into it. And as a result, these ideas of happily ever after in the fairy tales don't really end up working out that way unless we're willing to see it from a biblical perspective. So today, First Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is important, again, for married people because it will get us back on a plumb line. But it's important for single people. You know why? Because you will one day maybe get married. And the greatest predictor of how you'll be as a married person is how you are as a single person. And the greatest preparation for marriage is by living out biblical prescriptions for man and woman as a single person. It's never too early to prepare. In fact, it's never too early to pray. We're praying for our, we've, Elijah's not even one year old, but for his whole life. I've been praying and Olivia's been praying for him and for Manny and for Elijah's wife, future wife, and for Manny's future husband. Because we know the challenges growing up in this world, we pray for purity over them and over their future spouse. We pray for godliness. We pray for an understanding of grace, that they could know Jesus at the earliest age and they'd be protected so that they wouldn't give in to a lot of the things that are afflicting many of their, their peers. Um, these are the things. It's never too early uh, to prepare and to pray for but what one day God might gift us with this idea of marriage. And so for all of us, I think this has extreme relevance and importance. So First Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is God's word um, to us. It says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity of and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. 
They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's word. Okay, so probably the first thing you realize in this teaching on marriage, six verses given to women and one to the men. Why is that? Uh, Most likely it's because it is six times harder for a woman to live with a man than it is for us to live with women, right? That's a gracious view. So what's going on here? I think in order to understand this, in order to understand what Peter's talking about, we have to kind of get into a little bit of the mindset. I'm not going to go into, into great detail. But the Jewish, the Greco-Roman context, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to women, uh, women were not seen with, in much honor. We're not held in much honor in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world that Peter's writing to. Throughout Asia Minor, um, they were... Um, so the... the the prayer of Jewish men, you've heard this before. God, I praise you, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, I'm not a woman. Right? That's what they would pray. They're just grateful that they're not a woman. It, I think the, the prevailing, the dominant idea of women in those days was summed up in this, uh, in this Greek philosopher. He said, we have prostitutes for pleasure, okay? we have concubines for cohabitation, and we have wives to have legitimate children. That's basically what it is. Okay, so the role of a wife was simply to have kids, right, to enjoy the pleasure, the companionship. That was for other women. So that's the view of women in the time that Peter's writing. Not a very high view. Okay? Not a, it's a, it's a, it is a pretty chauvinistic view. It's a utilitarian view that the male culture, male-dominated patriarchal society in the Greco-Roman world had of women. So the question that these women were asking was, in the midst of a world that doesn't like us very much, And in the midst of a world that doesn't like our Christianity very much, how are we supposed to live as Christian women, as Christian women who are aliens and strangers in this world? And the question that men asked was, in this kind of a society, how then are we supposed to treat these women who are our wives? So because the ratio is six to one, I'm going to give two thoughts for the, uh, for the, uh, for the women in here and then one thought for the men, um, just to, to be faithful to the text. The first thing, first thing that we see here, beautiful women. What does it mean to be a woman of beauty? What does it mean to be a man of strength? That's what we're going to ask. The first thing that we see is that beautiful women, women of beauty, focus on inner beauty, okay? Uh, verse one, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Verse 3, your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, so the first thing, that beautiful women, women of beauty, focus on inner beauty. One of the things that hasn't changed throughout time is that women all want to be beautiful. And in every culture... We have our idea of what beauty is. In the culture that Peter's writing to, here's what beauty was. It's to have braided hair, it's to have gold jewelry, it's to have fine clothing. That's what beauty was back then. Maybe our ideas, I don't know what our ideas of beauty are these days, but we have our ideas. We have this ideal of what a beautiful woman looks like, and all of advertising pushes you to buy products that will help you to become like this ideal, right? 
That's why you see um, it, it's about cosmetics. It's about eyeliner. It's about makeup. It's about lipstick. It's about uh, blush or rouge or whatever it is, is on, your, on your face. It's why the cosmetics industry, it's why the plastic surgery industry is just exploding. It's why Weight Watchers and these diet things are all exploding because there's this ideal of what beauty is. That's why on today on Mother's Day, a lot of you, uh, a lot of us will get our wives or we'll get our mothers gifts to get a pedicure, a manicure, a makeover, whatever it might be. Uh, a hair salon, something like that in order to beautify the women of our lives. Why? Because all women want to be beauty, beautiful, and we have an idea of what beauty is in our culture. And all that we do pushes us towards these things. The problem with that, though, according to Peter and according to our experience, he says, uh, your beauty should not come from these things. Instead, it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. We know that the beauty on the outside always, always, always fades in time. That's why you have to go back and get another manicure, another pedicure. That's why you have to go back to the hair salon. That's why a perm shouldn't be called a perm. It should be called a temp because it's not really permanent because you've got to go back. If it was a perm, you'd never have to cut it. You'd never have to do it again. It, it would just always stay the same color, always stay the same shape. be like a helmet on your head. It's not permanent. It's, it's a temporary. That's why we have to keep on going back because the beauty on the Proverbs 31, this beautiful picture of a woman of godliness, a woman of honor. Proverbs 31, 30 says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. He's talking about the beauty, the inner beauty. You know what? Here, if I could just be honest, you could find, if you go out to a, a mall, <laughs> one time I was... I was meeting up with a man at, at Millennia. He was, um, in the, in the, he was separated from his wife, and they were about to get divorced. He was trying to get back together with her. She didn't want to get back together with him. And the whole time, and we're sitting at the food court, he's just looking, and he's like, man, sorry. We're talking. He's like, man, sorry. There's just all these beautiful women here at, at Millennia. And I understand that because as long as you get the right stuff from the store, as long as you get the right plastic surgery, it's not hard to be beautiful on the outside. They are a dime a dozen if you look around. But people who are inwardly beautiful is so rare in our day and age because we're so focused, not only as women, but as men too. We're so focused on the outside that that's what we value. That's what we pursue. That's what we talk about. And that's what we esteem. But God corrects us and his word rebukes us to tell us men of God understand that it's not about outer beauty. It's about inner beauty. And women of God understand that beautiful women focus on inner beauty, not on outer beauty, because those things fade and the inner beauty remains. It is the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in the eyes of God. Like That's what he's talking about. As you think about these things, focus on that. Don't focus on the external things. I, one of the things I ask people when they come to me for, uh, for relational advice, if, the, if a guy comes and he says, you know what, I'm crushing on this girl. What do you think? Can you pray about it? The, the first question I usually ask is, what do you like about her? And if he cannot articulate, it's usually one of two things it means to me. is One, he, the way she makes me feel, he likes that. Or two, it's all about outer beauty. And so the question I usually ask is, hey, are you, that, that's fine. I think she's a great girl. Um, I usually say she's a great girl if she's one of ours. But I, but I say, hey, are you okay living with that, her, with that 40 years later, 50 years later? And as they think about it, if it's all about outer beauty, then they say, oh, you know what? Maybe not. You know, let me rethink about this. But if they're a person who is inwardly beautiful, 
They say, you know what? I think I can. Even when, when 20 years later, 30 years later, all of that beauty begins to fade on the outside. It is the inner beauty that I've fallen in love with. That's what I long for. That's what I desire. And that's what I can be okay with 50 years later. Right? Men of God, what are we pursuing? Women of God, this is, the, this is, what, we're, this is what we're to focus on. Not me, but <laughs> this is what we're to focus on. Right? Inner beauty. The unfading. Why is he talking about this? Here's why he's talking about this. Because here's something that would happen. The view of women, extremely low in that culture. And then all of a sudden, here comes this great teacher who begins teaching about the dignity and the worth of women. He hails them in his examples of people as models of faith. He talks about a woman who lost her silver coin and flips it upside down as a picture of the love of God. Luke chapter 15. He goes to a Syrophoenician woman and he says, look, you are a model of faith. Nowhere in Israel have I seen faith like this. He hails these women and it is women who are the first ones at the tomb because he's restoring dignity to a people from whom dignity was stripped by not only the Jewish culture, but by the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, these women are, draw, are drawn and gravitating to the teachings of grace and the teachings of worth that are being, just being taught by this amazing teacher who gives dignity to a people who had never had it before. And so what are they doing? These women are beginning to put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, as in Jesus as Christ, and they're becoming Christians, and they're realizing there, there's a newness of life that has been given. There's a new lot in life. There's a new identity, a new behavior. We can do new things. We can forgive the people who've hurt us. And all of a sudden, everything is different in their lives. And so they go back to their non-believing husbands, and they're trying to convert them, trying to tell them, hey, you need to come to this same Jesus and for these women to have converted to a different religion is seen as subversive and seen as a lack of submission, insubordinate to these men of the house. And so here they are, they're trying to convert them. They say, you need to know this Jesus. He changed my life. He flipped my life. He's everything is different because of Jesus. And they're talking, you got to come to the, you got to come to church with me. And these men of God are not having, or these not men of God, these men of other religions are not having anything to do with it. And so these women are saying, what am I supposed to do? Should I leave them? What, what am I supposed to do? And so into that context, Peter's writing. He's saying, don't doll yourself up. He's not going to listen to that. Don't keep on nagging him. Don't keep, you can't keep on telling you, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. Your, your nagging is not going to save him. What is going to bring him to Jesus Christ? He says, in the same way, be submissive to your husband's so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Saying, don't nag them into surrender through your submission. He's saying to a culture that demands submission, don't submit to them because of the cultural ideals or the cultural norms. Submit to them because of Jesus Christ. And so here they are beginning to submit even to their non-Christian husbands in the same way we read this, we heard this last week that the authorities have been given to us. Even when it means submitting to Nero, we ought to submit in order that they might see the honor of Jesus Christ and they might be won over by your good deeds. In the same way, he's saying that. He's saying, don't win them over by trying to doll yourself up, look nice on the outside, put on more lipstick and be a seductress. Don't win them over that way. Don't win them over by nagging them, by telling them every day you got to do this. Saying sometimes it's without words that you speak the loudest. He's saying, as you submit to your husband, right, they will be, he will be won over 
Right? It's not a promise, it's a principle. It's a life principle. It's not about you constantly just chewing off their ear saying, you got to do this. It says they got to see it. Right? They need to see it lived out, that there's something different about the way that you live. There's something different about the way Jesus has transformed you. There's something different about how you live after you met Jesus. Saying by seeing that, they will be won over. By pursuing this inner beauty, this kind of a, this kind of an idea. You know, sometimes as I as I talk to couples, it's the other way around. You know, it's like the wife is trying to get so you know get me to help their husband, her husband, to submit to her and to her desires. I. I I, I think I understand the, the dynamic, and they wouldn't. They, obviously, they wouldn't say I'm trying to get him to submit. But underlying it, that's a lot of the reasoning. That's a lot of the desire within the heart is: can can you just get them to submit to what I want? Get him to submit to what I want. And I think there's something about the. It's, it's not just a cultural thing, but I think it's part of the hardwiring of a man and a woman. If you go back to, to Genesis, you've heard me talk about this, but. But the man, Adam, was called to a responsibility, was called to a mission, was called to a task, to name the animals, to take care of the earth, to subdue it, to, to, to rule over it. And that was a difficult thing. But he was called to that challenge. The woman was called to help him in that. Ultimately, she was called to him, not to that task. She was called to that relationship in order to support him, in order to help him. Guys are made for the conquest and are made for the competition, are made for the challenge. That's why I could play basketball with somebody, I've mentioned this before, and I can, I can fight and we can bleed together, being on the opposite team, but at the end of the game, we can be like best friends and go out to Ale House and eat together. Why? Because we bond over the challenge and over the competition and over the task. That is what brings out the manhood in us. Right? When, when I see some of, when I ask some of our women who don't, know, who don't know how to play sports and we say, hey, play sports, they're like, I can't, I, I don't want to hurt them. Why? Because they're, 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 their primary inclination is towards a relationship, not towards that challenge. And so when they get into it, yeah, they can, they can get all feisty and catty and stuff like that. But initially, they're, they're, the desire for girls is to connect on a relational level. So here's what I've seen time and time again when um, issues, issues rise up in relationships. Sometimes, because... I think there's something to say about the role of, 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 of uh, gender roles and about the male's pursuit in a relationship of a woman, pursuing her heart and winning her heart. Sometimes I've seen it the other way where the woman is the aggressor, the woman is the pursuer in the relationship, and what ends up happening is that he feels like his manhood has been stripped from him. And so that sets a pattern in the relationship where instead of him being the man and him leading, he's always drawn into passivity. Because she has taken the leadership role in that relationship. It begins from the beginning because there's something masculine and manly. That's something that drives a man about pursuing and taking that risk and putting himself out there in order to win the heart of a woman. And I think this is a pattern that continues on. It's, and and I, think it's, I think it's biblical, but it's something that I've seen in my, in my relationships as I talk with and as I counsel with, with, uh, with people in relationships as well, is when... The woman is the aggressor, forcing the man into submission. A lot of times it sets these unhealthy precedents where the manhood of the man and the leadership ability and the potential and the desire of that man has been robbed and he becomes passive and allows her to be the dominant one in the relationship. So he's saying here, Peter's saying here, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that without words, he might be won over. The first thing that we see here is that women of beauty right, focus on inner beauty rather than outer external beauty. Second thing that we see here, 
Second thing that we see starting in, uh, starting in verse uh, 5. Okay, starting in verse 5, we're going to see this. Second thing is women of beauty, beautiful women, hope in God. Okay, hope in God. This is what it says in verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Okay, they were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You're her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. It says this is how they did it. It is this unfading beauty. And this is this like crucial phrase here. What does it mean of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? Does that mean a woman who talks a lot, a girl who talks a lot, cannot be inwardly beautiful? I think as we understand what Peter is trying to say, as we break it down into its text, literally when he talks about uh, a gentle and quiet spirit, literally it means a peaceful, calm, serene spirit. A peaceful, calm, serene spirit. Here, the unfading beauty of a peaceful and calm and serene spirit. The image here is of a sea okay, that it just is characterized by these three adjectives. A sea that is peaceful and calm and serene. The picture of the glassy sea in Revelation is that this sea looks like a sheet of glass. Right? That's how calm and serene and peaceful this water is. Saying this is what a woman of beauty looks like. How does this, how's this, let me, let me ask, if your heart was to be described as a body of water, what would your heart look like? Would it be like Niagara Falls? It's just like roaring and all this stuff. And it's, I can't even hear myself thinking. Is that our hearts? Right? Some of us are like that. It's just, I can't hear what you're saying. I can't hear what anybody's saying because my heart is just like roaring rapid. Ah, Is that your heart? There's some of us, maybe our heart is like like an ocean. It's moments of serenity, but also there's moments of loud waves that come crashing over us. Maybe it's like a river, just constantly rushing, constantly running. He says, look, our hearts... As women of beauty, the calm and serene and tranquil like a glassy sea that is undisturbed by the storms of life, by the torments of life, by the trials of life. That's the way our hearts are supposed to be. How do we get like that? Verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Look. Here's what he's saying. Women of God, don't put your hope in your husband. Because a lot of us do. When everything is chaos around my life, at least my husband is with me. Because he'll be able to take care of it. He can pay the bills. And he can fix the family. And he can fix this leaky roof or whatever it might be. My husband, he will, he'll take care of it. We put our hope in our future husband. Everything, it might be stinky right now, but one day I'm going to get married and everything's going to be okay. And as soon as I get into that relationship, all of this, this ugliness that I feel is going to be made right. 
As soon as these things start getting, get, get, getting taken care of, we put our hope in all of these different things. She's, he's saying, listen, you want to have a, a heart that's like this. And we put our hope in God because there's going to be a time when that man of your dreams, whether he's married to you or not, is not going to pull through for you. He's not going to come through. He's not going to be there. You're going to get into an argument. He's going to lose a job, perhaps. You're going to break up with him. He's going to go off the deep end. There's some, as we put our hope in people, our hearts are never going to be at peace because these people are going to fail us. Right? Inner beauty cultivated as we put our hope in God and our hearts become serene. Where do you go? All the single ladies, all us married ladies, all the single men, all us married men, where do we put our hope when chaos rises in our lives? When the storms of life come, where do we put our hope? What happens then? When all of our security is stripped away from us, when all our significance is taken from us, when all of our hope seems like it's gone, where, where do we go then? How do we find peace in the midst of that? Where do we go when we've got issues, we've got problems, we've got hardships in life? Where do we go? What's your gut reaction when you find out that something bad has happened? Do you move to God in putting your hope in him or do you move to people? Where do we go? Uh, July 2011, Norway. I don't know if you guys remember, there was um, this shooting that happened, terrorist shooting. Twice, two things happened, two shootings happened. One right after another, two hours after another, first one. Uh, first one, I forget where exactly it was. I, oh, it was, it was in a, around the government, government center. Eight people died, a couple hundred were injured, many of them severely injured. Two hours later at a youth camp, okay, at a youth camp, 70, uh, 69 children, 69 youth killed, and over 100 were hurt. All told, 77 people died, over 300 were hurt. The entire nation was rocked to its core. This was the greatest, biggest, uh, biggest killing in Norway since World War II. It's a 5 million population. One in every four people knew somebody that was affected by this. Imagine if that happened in our context, right? That's like this whole section right here. Know somebody that was affected by these shootings, by this terrorist activity. Either they, were, they, they passed away or they were severely injured or they were hurt. At that kind of trauma, you don't recover from that. In a, it doesn't, you don't recover in a year or two years. What do you do in a time like this? Scandinavia rocked, okay? So... There was a couple days later, I think it was in Stockholm, Sweden, right next door, the, the bordering country. Uh, there was a group from Hillsong, Australia, that went over there, and they were leading this worship set, and they're thinking about the, what's going on in, in this Scandinavian region of Europe. So what do we do? How do we bring hope in a place like this? What do we say? And so this one guy named Reuben Morgan sat down with one of the pastors in that area, and they just, started, uh, they just started praying, and they just started singing songs. And out of that, they just uh, wrote this one song, Where Do We Put Our Hope? And they wrote this song, you know what? It, it's an old, old hymn. They added a, a, a bridge to it. They said, where do we go when everything seems to be falling apart in our lives? Chaos surrounds, and all these things are abounding in, in, in our midst that's just causing us to despair and be in dismay. They wrote, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And that bridge says, Christ alone. Cornerstone. The weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. The weak made strong. And all these, these as, as things are falling down around them, these people are feeling this weakness and all around them and saying, Christ alone, that's where we put our hope. That's where we build our lives. That's the, he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Anything else that we build, our husbands, our future husbands, our wives, our families, all of these things are going to crumble as a foundation of our lives because they will always fail us in some way. The only cornerstone that we can build our lives upon, the only unshakable rock, is Christ alone, the cornerstone. And through him, the weak can be made strong in the love of the Savior. That we can rise up in faith, even though we're weak and we feel like we've got nothing to offer to him. When we put our hope in Christ, we rise up. Though darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. Storm, wind, waves, my anchor holds within the veil. Nothing else will do. No other hope, no other foundation, no other rock, no other cornerstone outside of Jesus Christ. Man, you see a woman like that? That is beautiful. You see a person like that. When everything in life is just going crazy around them, but they've got this rock-solid trust in Christ, it gives them a serenity, a peace, a calm. Even though everyone else would be like, what? How can you remain like, how can you remain so calm? because their anchor holds within the veil. They've got a hope that is built on the surety and the certainty and the rock that is Jesus Christ. It's him alone. Right? It's him alone. I know some of y'all are hearing this and you're like, okay, that's cool. But we say this now because there will be times in our lives when our faith is going to be shaken and tested. And your best preparation for then is by doing it now. By putting our hope in Christ, learning the joyful discipline of surrendering our lives and surrendering our hope and taking it off of the things of this life and putting it in Christ alone, making him our hope, making him our only hope. It says this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. And it goes on, talks about Sarah. I don't have time to talk about that. It says you're her daughters if you do what is right and not give in to fear. That's the second thing. Two things about women of beauty. They pursue inner beauty and they put their hope in God. The third thing that we see then, this is for the men and for all who want to be with a godly man. The last thing is strong men lift up their women. They lift up their wives, it probably says there, but strong men lift up their women. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It talks about women as the weaker partner. I know some of you women might get upset about that. But it's talking, I think most commentators would say, it's talking about biologically, physically, physiologically, men just have, are stronger than women, and women are the weaker partner. This is just how biologically we're made, for men to be, in a sense, a protector. All the more so, 
says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate. Okay? This word, in the same way, you've heard this often because it's talking in the context of submission. To surrender your rights for the sake of another. And that's what he's saying here again. He's saying the same thing. It's about mutually surrendering your rights one to another rather than demanding them. You, you talk to the husband who says, you know what, uh, wife, you need to submit to me. If a husband says you need to submit to me, there's something wrong there. First of all, I think the husband, we need to ask ourselves, why do I have to make her submit to me? There's probably something unsubmission worthy in me that's making me say you have to submit to me. Either that or there's something of the wife that needs to be more submissive or to respect her husband. But either way, this is not saying he's not saying, hey, make he never says make your wife submit to you. And if you need to do that, then we need to look inside ourselves. And say, am I loving and laying down my life in such a way that I become a man worthy of respect so that she gladly submits to me? Right? So here's a question, men. Are we men of honor and respect in order that women would one day want to submit to us if we're not married and that our wives would want to submit to us, that they trust us and they trust the God that we're following in order that she would submit to us out of reverence for Christ? Nowhere does it say that we're to make, that men are supposed to make their wives submit. It's interesting because the word that he uses is in the same way, be considerate. It literally, I mean, you, you understand the word. It means consider her, consider her. It means to know, to treat her with knowledge. And what does that mean? It means we need to know what our woman needs in order that we might offer that to her. One of my friends is, um, when he went to serve at a church in California under just an amazing wise pastor, well, the first one of the first questions he asked this pastor was, "Hey, how can I be the what? What advice can you give to me to be a good husband uh, to my wife?" And here's what this pastor said. He just said one thing. He said, "Be a student of your wife. Right? Know her. Know what she likes. Know what she needs. Know what she doesn't like. Know what pushes her buttons, and love her in a way that she understands." I don't know if you read this tweet. Heard this tweet? I I, I read this last week. Um, this guy tweeted and he said, I need a new iPhone battery because I asked Siri, what do women want? It's been two days and she's still talking. That's pretty funny, I think. So I wanted to see because women are complex, right? Very complex. So I decided, well, I'm going to see if that really is true. So I asked Siri, I said, Siri, what do women want? And this is what Siri said to me. She said, why don't you ask them? Uh, that is brilliant <laughs> theology. Ask her what she wants. Study her, get to know her, find out about her, and then consider her in that way. Well, you love your wife in a way that she knows how. It's not easy. You don't get her your brand new football helmet remote control holder for her birthday. You don't get her that because that's not considering her, right? Our senior pastor, Inky, when, uh, you know, he's, he's cool, right? He's the man. Before he started, uh, before he got married to his wife, he was dating her. Uh, before he even dated her, she rejected him many times, which goes to say that she's a woman. But so in his desire to win her heart, he said, I'm going to find out her class schedule. And so he got her class schedule. And he would leave his class 15 minutes before, and he would get to her class and wait for her to come out 
And when she came out, he would say hi. He would say in Korean, he would say annyeonghaseyo or whatever it was. He would carry her books and walk her to the next class. And he said he would be late for his class every time. And in time, by studying, by knowing her, he won her heart. And he won her hand in marriage. Because he's the man. That's cute. That's sweet. That's romantic, right? Otherwise, like, hide your kids. He's coming again, right? Because <laughs> he's the man. He married her. It's a beautiful story. I'd be considerate. Consider them. With respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with the gracious gift of life. He's saying, look, they are heirs. They're partners with you. Here's what that means. It means you have differences in roles, but your status is equal. You are co-heirs. Literally means co-heirs or joint heirs. 50-50 partners in this. That means that you, as a, if you're a single man, you need to take responsibility for yourself before you can take responsibility for somebody else. If you can't take care of yourself, then what business do you have taking care of a pet, let alone a woman, who is your joint heir, your partner in life? This is, I mean, I think if we get this, it'll save us a lot of heartbreak down the line. I don't understand this. Man up. But here's, here's what he's saying. Being a man is not about who can burp the loudest and who can get the highest score in, in, in PS2. Three, <laughs> four, eight, whatever. Right? We're so progressive here. It's not about who can chop down the tree the fastest. I don't know whatever it is that we think our culture thinks uh, manhood is. It's about taking ownership for ourselves, for our lives, being responsible for ourselves. And being a man of godliness and a man of honor that a woman would gladly give her life to follow because she knows that we follow Christ. Here's, here's what's at stake. At the end of it all, he says, so that it just kind of slips it in so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Like, man, that's the reason why my prayers seem to be hitting the wall. Because I'm not taking care of my woman. Because I'm not taking care of my wife. I'm not taking care of my life. When it says nothing will hinder your prayers, here's the picture it's giving. It's like you're fighting in war, and then an enemy digs a trench in between y'all so that you cannot, so that your whatever is trying to get to the other side cannot get there. Saying if we're not taking, if we're not being the man of God that He's called us to be, if we're not taking care of our wives in this way, then your prayers are going into a ditch, and it's never getting to the place where it needs to go to attack the enemy. It's never reaching the heavens. It's just falling into this ditch. There it is. <laughs> women, women of inner beauty, put your hope in God. Men, don't pound submission. Lift her up in order that she might be everything that she can be. In every place we see, we see this teaching. I love how Paul writes it especially. As he gives this similar teaching, he says, you know what? At the end of it all, he just yanks the carpet out and says, you know what? I'm not even talking about marriage. First of all, I'm talking about Christ. In the church. Because I know that some of us are going to listen to these commands in order that we might have a better marriage, which is important. But if that marriage still becomes the ultimate, then our hope really isn't in him. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't make your marriage the ultimate marriage. You know how to make your marriage the best marriage that it could possibly be? By taking your eyes off of this marriage and lifting your eyes up to another marriage. 
the marriage of Ephesians 5. The marriage that Jesus talks about. The marriage that Paul talks about. The marriage of Christ and his church. The marriage that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, will one day be a part of. To realize that we can hope in God because he has done for us what no husband could ever do well, perfectly right for us. He has submitted himself. He has given up his rights. The strong made weak. The beautiful becoming broken. How? Why? In order that the weak might be made strong. In order that the broken might be made beautiful. Jesus did that for you and for me. Gladly, willingly. So that we have this in our hearts. We don't need it from anyone else. We have this in our hearts. So that we can give this to other people that God's called us to give it to. First our spouse and then to others. Because we've received from him, we can give to others. Let's pray together. Hey, if we're here and we're married, Let's uh, just grab a hold of their hand and, and just pray for them. Pray for one another. Lift each other up. God, help us to be a marriage that would honor you and that would show the beauty of Christ. Do you pray for that? Also, maybe you can pray if you're here and, and pray for your parents' marriage. Pray for the marriage of others that you know. Lord, help them to receive grace so that they could give grace. And then maybe others of us, are for those who are single, let's pray, God, make me into a man of godliness. Make me into a woman of godliness, a man of strength, a woman of beauty, unfading beauty, God-honoring strength. And let's pray for our parent marriages or pray for the marriages of those around us. Pray for people that we know. Lord God, that you would bless their marriage and help them to see more of you. Just take a minute or two right now just to pray for one another, to pray for marriages. And let's pray for marriages of our congregation of Harvest. Healthy churches are built upon healthy marriages, built upon healthy men and women who live out the teaching of Scripture by grace. So let's pray for one another for just a few moments, just really lifting each other up, thanking God for one another, thanking God for parents, for family, for spouses, for singlehood with which we can honor God in our lives. Let's pray together for a couple of moments and then I'll pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this 
this hard but important teaching. I pray for all of us who are single in here, Holy Spirit of God, that you would just fall afresh upon each of your people, that their hope would not be in some relationship now or some relationship in the future, but their deepest hope would be in knowing you and loving you and giving themselves to you. I pray for all who are married in here, that you would work within our hearts as well, that you would teach us what it means to receive from you in order that we might give to others. We pray that you would build not only healthy marriages and healthy relationships in here, but a healthy view and a healthy picture and a healthy understanding of this call to picture forth the image of the love of Jesus Christ for his church, for his bride. Pray that as we live, Lord, that you would help us to live, surrender to you, understanding all that you've done for us. And when we know the gospel in our hearts, it's not you lay this burden on us and cause us to run, but you give us wings of grace so that when we leave here, we can soar and we can fly because you are the power and the means and the strength by which we can do this. We thank you so much. We love you. We love one another because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.